Bible prophecy is often misunderstood and misapplied, which leaves many people confused or fearful. But when the Bible is studied in its proper context, prophecy becomes clear and understandable. There is no one we can trust more than Jesus, and His words will speak specifically to us as we study them in their simplicity. Welcome to Jesus on Prophecy. Good to have you back here for yet another week. And today's topic, as Sal mentioned, is a prophecy's final judgment hour. So we're going to talk about the judgment today and how that pertains to prophecy. And uh, it's going to be the focus of our study tonight. So before we get into the topic today, I'd like to, like always, ask that we have a word of prayer and ask that the Holy Spirit will guide our time together during this time. So let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity for us to meet again, to delve into your word, and to understand what it is that we must know, because we know that your word does not come back to your void, and we know that when, as we hear the words of the, of the Bible, we will be blessed, and that we will also know that it will change us uh, to be more like Jesus. So please guide our time together, we pray. And give us wisdom and understanding that only the Holy Spirit can give. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last night we talked about a very important topic. It was a warning message that was given to the world called the three angels' messages found in Revelation chapter 14. And this is the final message that we learned that will go out into the whole globe before Jesus comes. It is the most urgent message of all history. And it's our message. The one that God has given to our generation and it's relevant for our time today. And tonight we're going to go over a specific portion of that three angels message about this message found in prophecy. And we're going to take a look at Revelation chapter 14 verse 7, which is where this three angels message begins. And you'll notice in Revelation chapter 14 verse 7, we read this last time we met, it said, Fear God. And give glory to him for the hour of his what? Judgment. Judgment has come. So we learned last time, we studied the first angel's message. It's a call for us to fear God. What does that mean to fear God? It means to obey him, right? To fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. We also see that we are to give glory to him. How do we give glory to him? We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, it says, Whatsoever you eat, whatsoever you drink, whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. So in other words, our lifestyle should be all centered to glorify God in all that we do. And here we see a call for holiness, a call for surrender, a call for obedience to God. And the Bible says, the hour of his judgment. Note, notice, note the next two words. The hour of his judgment will come, has come, right? The hour of his judgment has come. So it doesn't say that the judgment will come. It's not referring to this taking place in the future, but it's going to, it has come. And this is, this is prior to the coming of Jesus. We see that the hour of God's judgment has come. The clock has struck the hour. The world has entered into a significant time just before the coming of Jesus. And we're going to learn about it tonight and know exactly when 
and what that is. And what else does the Bible say about Revelation's final judgment? We see that the prophecies of the books of Daniel and Revelation blend to share incredible details regarding the timeline of history. They reveal events related to Jesus' arrival the first time and what will happen just before he comes the second time. And so both of these books provide us vital information about the final judgment. Jesus, he loves us so much. He does not want us to be blind or ignorant about what is to come. And he will open these mysteries up to us through the words of the Bible. And that is why it is so, uh, it is so encouraging to see us here tonight. As we are studying Jesus on prophecy, Jesus has a prophecy for us to learn tonight regarding the judgment. So, the final judgment. The, Rev the book of Revelation describes judgment, and Daniel predicts when and where this judgment takes place. And Revelation tells us many details about the judgment's purpose and scope. And one thing we can be sure of is that there's no reason for us to fear the judgment. Amen? I know that some people that fear the judgment, they wonder, like, am I going to be able to stand before God? Will I be assured that I will make it? And this is a fear that many people have. But we have no reason to fear the judgment when Jesus is on our side. Amen? And he has given us the assurance that we can face the judgment with confidence. And it tells us, furthermore, that the judgment determines what reward Jesus gives every individual at his second coming. And so... We're going to find this in Matthew chapter 16, verse 27. It says, For the Son of Man, that's Jesus, will come in the glory of His Father with His angels, and then He will reward each according to His works. Right? So it's talking about when Jesus comes back, what is Jesus going to do when He comes back the second time? What does it say in this verse? He comes and he will deal a reward according to each person's works. Right? And so we see very clearly that Jesus is coming to reward everyone according to their work. And we see in Revelation chapter 20, verse 12, it says, I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. So here's something that the Bible calls books that are involved in the judgment. From these books, God decides the rewards He gives to every man at the second coming of Christ. And so everyone will be judged depending on whether they have confessed their sins and allow the righteousness of Christ to be counted on their record. Or, if they have rebelled against God and refused Jesus' offer of atonement. To those who refuse this precious gift, their entire record of sin stands against them. But the judgment is not just about looking at what men and women have done. It is the hour of His, that is God's judgment. God is also being judged during this time. And you may wonder, why would God be judged? That, does, that sounds so strange. I thought only people were being judged. But friends, you'll see that 
explain later as we go further into this. How is God also being judged during this time of judgment as well? So we're going to explore that later. But millennia ago, in heaven, angels led by Lucifer rebelled against God. God had given these angels the power of choice. They challenged the authority and government of God. And Lucifer said, God is unfair. God is unjust. God is vindictive. He's a tyrant. He's a wrathful judge. And this was attacking the very character of God. And we see that the rebellion in heaven introduced a question into the universe about God's character. His fairness. His integrity. So this judgment that Revelation describes is not because God doesn't know who's saved or lost. God is fair, and just that He opens the records of human lives before the whole universe so that all can see that everyone who is lost is lost because of their own decisions. They're not lost because God made an arbitrary choice to save some and destroy others but because of their own individual choices. And the major theme of the book of Revelation is a conflict between Christ and Satan, between good and evil. And the final judgment resolves this conflict. It reveals the truth. That is the purpose of the judgment. The purpose of the judgment is to settle once and for all this great controversy between Christ and Satan between good and evil, between truth and error, and the judgment is going to bring the truth to light. And Satan will be exposed for the liar that he is because we see that God reveals in the judgment that he has done everything he can to save, and Satan has done everything he can to destroy. And so anybody that is lost, is lost not because God pointed his finger and said, you're lost. They're lost because of their decisions and their choices. They're lost because they rejected his grace. And Revelation reveals many details about God's work of judgment. But we ask the question, which leads us to question number one. Where does the judgment take place? On earth? In an earthly courtroom? Or does it occur in heaven itself? Well, let's take a look at what the book of Revelation tells us as it describes vivid scenes of the hour of God's judgment. But to discover where and when the judgment begins, we must take a look at the prophetic book of Daniel. Remember we talked about Daniel and Revelation are both uh, twins. They are compatible to one another. They complement each other. They are both prophetic books. And they endure, they, they, comp, they, they, uh, they give credit to one another, right? So the book that, the book of Daniel, we learned before, that the book of Daniel is a book that Jesus himself endorsed. It's Jesus himself said that we should read. Jesus himself says that it is a book that addresses the last days. And the book of Daniel unlocks many of the mysteries in Revelation. So we should be thankful that we have that book of Daniel because it helps us to understand Revelation. And so in the seventh chapter of Daniel, that's where we're, where we're going to go, the prophet describes looking up into heaven in vision. And we're going to go to page 864 in our Bibles, Daniel 7, 
9 and 10. So we're going to have table number one read that. And while table number one is getting ready to read that, I want to make sure that every table leader at each table, please uh, be ready to select someone, a willing volunteer, willing, okay, uh, to uh, read that verse uh, when, that, when, our turn come, when your turn comes around. Okay, so we're going to Daniel chapter 7, 9 and 10. And the question is, where does the judgment take place? And we're going to take a look in Daniel 7, 9 and 10, page 864. Page 864. If we're there, say amen. 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 Let's go to table number one. If someone can read Daniel 7, 9 and 10 for us. And watch till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated, his garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, his wheels a burning fire, a fiery stream issued, and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him, ten thousand times, ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Ah, thank you. So it tells us very clearly what is taking place here. Judgment. It's a judgment scene, right? The, the, the thrones were seated. The books were open. We see that judgment is commenced. What are the 10,000 times 10,000 beings that are before the throne? Well, they are angels of God. You see that in heaven, there are two types of angels that we know of that are specifically mentioned. There are the cherubim and the seraphim. And so we see that the scene of glory and splendor takes place not on earth, but where? In heaven. Okay, so the angels being there tells us this judgment is taking place in heaven. Right? Not on earth, but in heaven at the very throne of God. And we see that the court was seated this is the highest court in the universe from which there is no appeal. This is higher than the Supreme Court. Okay? And so in answer to your question, where does the judgment take place? We find the answer is where? In heaven. In heaven. That's right. Not on earth, but this judgment is taking place in heaven. So question number two, we know the where. Now when does this judgment take place? And we see that the first angel of Revelation 14 declares that the hour of his judgment has come. So is this message before or after the second coming? It's before, right? It has to be. This message about the judgment that has come, it comes before Jesus' coming. Because when Jesus comes, what does he do? He gives every man their reward. Remember that? Right? So that can't happen until a judgment has predetermined all these things. Right? And so if the judgment has already started before the second coming, and if the signs of the times tells us that the second coming is near, could it be that the judgment in heaven has already begun? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it does. You just, just do deductive reasoning based on what the Bible clearly brings out. The judgment in heaven has already begun. And we're going to see further evidence for that. We see that when Christ ascends, the judgment will have already finished, and those that are resurrected and caught up to meet Christ in the air have been declared in the judgment as righteous through Jesus. In other words, those people 
They have been saved by the blood of the Lamb. Their characters have been renewed by the image of Jesus. And they reflect Jesus in word and deed. And their lives have passed through the judgment because they have surrendered themselves to His Spirit to change them. And could it be that those who are destroyed by the brightness of His coming, those who are ultimately and eternally lost, have their fate decided by their own choices as revealed in the judgments that Daniel tells when the judgment takes place? Notice what Jesus says in Revelation chapter 22, verse 12. Let's turn there, page 1190. Revelation 22, verse 12. What does Jesus say about the judgment and what's going to take place after the judgment? Revelation chapter 22, verse 12. Can we have someone from table number 2 read that for us, please? Revelation 22, 12, page 1190. And behold, I am coming quickly, and the Lord is with me, to give to everyone according to his work. Okay. Thank you. So according to Jesus, when he comes back, the reward that is going to be the reward that is to be given has already been decided because he gives it when? When he comes. Right? He gives the reward when he comes and not before. So according to this verse, as well as many others, the judgment will take place before Jesus comes. And we're going to take a look at another verse. Uh, page 8, 66 is where we're going. Daniel 8, verse 14. Page 8, 66. Let's take a look at another text here. Uh, page 866, Daniel 8, 14. And uh, we'll go ahead and jump to table number 5. Table number 5. I think there's two people there. Uh, Daniel 8.14, page 8.66. Let's take a look at what else this text reveals to us. Daniel 8.14. And he said to me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Okay. So we see that this verse is outlining a time prophecy or a time period. It says for 2,300 days then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. So there are two things here. The time period is 2,300 days. 2,300 days. Right? And uh, we see that there's a significance to this time period. What's the significance? What's the event? There's obviously some sort of timeline associated with this prophecy that we need to understand. Now, when we look at the next text, uh, Daniel 8, 16 and 17, and we'll have uh, page, it's the same page, 866. We're not going anywhere. It's the same page. You can find it on there in your table Bibles. Daniel 8, 16 and 17. Can we have someone from table 7 read that for us, please? So he came near where I stood, and when he came out of the grave, he fell on my face. 
Okay, so this is right after that Daniel heard about this time period, 2300 days, and he says that this day, this time period, what's significant about it? It says that this time refers to what specifically? The time of the end, right? So this time period, 2300 days, has a significant relevance to the time of the end. And we're living in the time of the end, so we want to know what the significance is, right? So we are uh, we, we can safely say that this prophecy is, re is, is re relative to us. It's of critical importance for us to understand it. And we see in Daniel 8.14, where it says, For 2,300 days, what will happen? Then the sanctuary will be cleansed. Okay? So the term... Sanctuary shall be cleansed may be a little difficult for us to understand. But it was not difficult at all for Daniel to understand because Daniel was a Jew and he lived in the days of the Old Testament sanctuary and Daniel knew exactly what it meant when it said that the sanctuary shall be cleansed. And so we need to have that background understanding to see what is the relevance of this 2300 day time period and how does it relate to the sanctuary being cleansed. And so that leads us to question number three. What does the cleansing of the sanctuary mean? And we are going to go to uh, the very beginning. Uh, the best way to understand this is to go from the very beginning and see what did God ask the children of Israel to do when they first came out of Egypt? What did he tell them to do in Exodus chapter 25, verse 8? He says, let them make me a what? sanctuary that I may dwell among them. So we've studied about the sanctuary a little bit in our presentation called Revelation's Lamb. But, and we see that the Lamb represents who? Jesus, right? Jesus Christ. And it represents everything uh, centered around Jesus as being this sacrifice for mankind. His life was given to us and we are going to find that the Lamb and the sanctuary played a significant role in prophecy. It's amazing that through God's people, that though God's people uh, often rejected him, he still wanted to dwell with them. And this text should be a huge encouragement to us because it reminds us that God's sole desire is to be with us. He's a relational God. He wants to be with his people. And we see that the sanctuary was a place in the Old Testament where God would meet his people. There were several parts to it and many services. Many people do, know, do not understand this important element and we need to make it clear tonight. So I hope that by tonight, it's clear. If it's not clear, <laughs> talk to me afterwards. And, uh, but anyway, I hope that the Lord will give us clarity tonight. But all the services in the sanctuary, all of them, were symbols that pointed to something that Jesus would do in the life of the believer. It reveals Jesus in many ways and helps us to understand what he is doing right now. And it's also a model that reveals prophecy. Much of what is written in the book of Revelation and other prophetic book, books are quotes or references to the sanctuary. So in order to understand the end time prophecy, we must understand the sanctuary. So we're going to take time to explore the sanctuary here tonight. We see that the sanctuary, there's three significant parts to the sanctuary. And, uh, well, two actually, but there's three if you include the outer court. 
Uh, the outer core was a tent-like structure uh, around the tabernacle. It surrounded the, the, the tabernacle itself. And that outer court, there's two articles of furniture there. There's when you first entered, you'd see the altar of burnt offering. Right? That's where you would that's where the sacrifice would take place. And then you go further, next to that is the uh, the bra the bra the brass labor where they wash their hands. And so those are the two things there on the outer court. And the tent-like structure itself had two parts to it, two, two compartments. We see that there is the holy place, and when you go beyond the veil, you enter into the most holy place, right? And the most holy place is where God would meet with his people. And we saw that if a man, back in Old Testament times, committed a sin, if he got angry, or he stole something, he lied, or he lusted, he would get a lamb and bring that lamb to the sanctuary. And the lamb had to be not just any lamb, but it had to be a lamb without spot, without blemish. And he would bring that lamb to the altar, and then he would put his hands over the head of that lamb, and he would confess his sins upon that lamb. And we see that the sinner's guilt was then symbolically transferred to the perfect lamb, and we see that the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is what? Death. The lamb died in place of the sinner because death was required for every sinner. But when the sinner transferred their sins upon this perfect lamb, that lamb died in the place of that sinner. That lamb took upon itself the punishment that was due to that person. That lamb was slain and his blood was caught in a basin. And the lamb's body would be put on the altar in the court. And this would point to the time where Christ's body would be offered on Calvary's cross. Jesus died in your place. He is your substitute. Just as that lamb was their substitute. And just as the sins were transferred to that lamb that was slain, in the same way, our sins, your and my, yours and mine, will be transferred to the spotless lamb when we confess them. The altar is a symbol of the cross where Jesus died for you. And we see that every lamb that was slain at that time was hope for every Israelite that the Savior would someday come to redeem them. Jesus has come for you already, friends. And you can be free from guilt when your life is surrendered to Him. Amen? And we see that the animal, after it was killed, after it was slain, the priest would leave the court and take the blood into the sanctuary. And the priest would bring that blood, to the blood of the sacrifice, before the veil, the veil that separated between the, uh, the that separated the holy place, right? So they into the first veil, and they would come to the veil where it was right before the most holy place. And then there, they would take that blood and they would sprinkle it on that veil. And this was called the daily sacrifice. In other words, every person in that camp that committed sin had to do this. And so, can you imagine how many lambs were slain? each day. How much blood is being sprinkled on that veil? And we see that this daily sacrifice represents Jesus' death on the cross 
But after his death, Jesus resurrected, right? And he ascended to heaven. And so why did Jesus ascend to heaven? Because he had to now play the role of that priest. He now had to take his blood, so to speak, and come to the Father and present the blood to the Father, to the, before the throne of God. He offers the merits of his blood in heaven on our behalf. And Jesus is the lamb that died for us, but Jesus is also the priest who lives for us, and he's living as our priest now. And in heaven's sanctuary is where he's at, and he's interceding for us, the book of Hebrews says. He's our mediator. And this, and in heaven's sanctuary he says, this man is one of mine. I pardoned him, I forgive him. And the priests in the sanctuary services did not go into that most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was. They did not go into that most holy place compartment every day. How often did they go into that most holy place? Once a year. That's right. That's the difference, right? We see that they went to the most holy, uh, the, the holy place, I'm sorry. They went to the holy place for the daily sacrifice to sprinkle that blood upon the veil, but they, once a year only, would they enter into the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was. And the Ark of the Covenant had two golden cherubim, and between it was the mercy seat, which was a throne of God, a symbol of God's throne, and above the mercy seat was a flame, which was called the Shekinah glory. It was God's presence that was actually there. And underneath, of course, we see the Ten Commandments was also underneath the mercy seat. So what does that tell us? You know that uh, Hebrews tells us that when Moses made the sanctuary, God revealed the pattern to him. The real sanctuary. So Moses patterned the sanctuary that he made after the heavenly sanctuary that was revealed to him. So everything in heaven is, the heaven is the original sanctuary, the earthly sanctuary is just a copy of that. You guys follow? Okay? And so we see that if that is the case, if that is true, which I believe it is, then that means that, what does it mean when the law of God is underneath the mercy seat? And the law of God represents what? God's throne, or a place where God rules, where God judges. So that tells us that, what does that tell us? The foundation of God's throne, the foundation of God's government is His law. The law is the basis of which this judgment is determined. And we see that on the Day of Atonement, it was very interesting because over time, over the year, right, as they sprinkled the blood from the daily sacrifices upon that veil, once a year there was a day called the Day of Atonement. We call that today Yom Kippur. Uh, if you see the calendar, it kind of tells you Yom Kippur, that's the Day of Atonement in, 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 uh, for the Jews, right? The Day of Judgment. It was a day of cleansing the sanctuary, right? So that word atonement, if you break it up, what does the Day of Atonement mean? What's, what's the significance of that? If you break it up, it's at one meant. It's 
Catch that? So the Day of Atonement is a means to bring lost humanity who have been separated from God because of their sins. This is the time where they become at one with God again. This is a time where they are restored in their relation with God because their sins that have separated God is now no more. So this is a very significant event. This event actually cleanses all the sins of the people that has been accumulating in the sanctuary for that year once and for all. It's all completely erased during this time. So we see that this was the most important day of the Jewish year. The high priest would enter into the most sacred part of the temple. And before the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the throne of God. And as that priest was doing that work, what was happening outside the temple? We see that every Israelite was waiting with anticipation. And as they were waiting, they were examining their hearts and they were praying they were afflicting their souls. They knelt there and they said, God, wash me clean. God, I have. I want to give up my evil temper. God, I want to give up my bitterness and resentment. God, I want to give up my lust. I want to give up my jealousy. And every Israelite who did not participate in searching their hearts and making sure that they confessed every sin, they were cut off when the high priest came out of that sanctuary. When that high priest comes out of that sanctuary, the, it, the ministration for the people is over. Every person is now in the state that they're in. And if there is one person who did not confess their sins, they were cut off from the camp. They were judged. They were separated from God's people. The cleansing of the sanctuary in the Old Testament, illustrates something that would happen also before Jesus comes the second time. We see that while the de daily sacrifices depicted the sacrifice of Jesus, the cleansing of the sanctuary occurred only once yearly and pointed forward to something else. And we see in Daniel chapter 8, verse 14, it says, For unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. This refers to a judgment that takes place before the end of Earth's history. So the Day of Atonement is an illustration of God's judgment in the heavenly sanctuary that will occur just before Jesus comes. And so, after this mysterious time period of 2300 days, prophecy predicts a cosmic judgment will take place. God will sit on his throne. Everyone who has ever lived or is alive will be judged. And so that leads us to question number four. What is the meaning of these 2300 days? I don't understand. What does 2300 days mean? Well, don't feel bad if you don't understand it. <laughs> Did you know that the prophet Daniel as he had this vision he didn't understand it either. But the reason why he couldn't understand it because it wasn't relevant to his time. But here we are in the end time. And we know that this time period is very significant for us. 
And so we need to know it. And that's what we're going to attempt to find out today. So let's take a look at what Gabriel, the angel, who was sent to Daniel. Daniel said, I don't get it. I don't understand it. So God sent the angel Gabriel to explain. Wouldn't you like that? How many of you, how many, how many of you here but would much rather have an angel come here and do the Jesus on Prophecy series than me? Without a doubt, right? <laughs> I would join you. I would sit there with you. I'll say, all right, go ahead, explain it to us. But Daniel, he, called, he, he didn't understand, so the angel was sent, was sent by God, Gabriel, to give this explanation. And it says, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. Okay, so he gives a context for this time period. This 2300 days is no doubt speaking about the end of time. This prophecy foretells a time period of 2300 days. Okay, now, when we think about 2300 days, we can't think about that being literal 2300 days, because from Daniel's day, if you count 2300 days from Daniel's day, does that bring us to the time of the end? No, it doesn't. Right? It, it, it falls short. Right? So it can't be literal days. And, and, and you know, here's how we know this. The Bible, the people of the Bible back then, they understood what days meant in prophecy. In the book of Ezekiel, uh, written about the same time that Daniel was uh, around, by the way, contains a key to help us to unlock the meaning of this time period. If you look at Ezekiel chapter 4, verse 6, it says there, I have laid on you a day for each what? Year. Right? So a day for a year principle is found in the Bible. It's also found in Numbers 14, I think it's 34, also, or 24. I, I, it's one that also talks about a day for a year as well. There's other verses too, but those are the two prominent ones. Uh, but we see that uh, 2,300 days, when it says that a day for a year principle that the Bible actually endorses, when we're understanding prophetic time, right? So 2,300 prophetic days equals what? 2,300 literal years, okay? We're following what the Bible says, what the Bible prescribes, okay? We're not pulling this out of a hat. The Bible itself tells us how to interpret prophetic time, okay? So a day for a year principle is biblical. It's a, it's a biblical method of interpreting this. So we see that the prophecy makes more sense now. 2,300 days, it's not days, but they're prophetic days. Prophetic day is a literal year, so it's 2,300 years. Okay? So, if the Bible gives us a starting point for the 2,300 years, then we could easily calculate the ending point of the 2,300 years. Yes or no? So in other words, if we know where it starts, we just do the math and we know where it'll end. Isn't that right? Right? So, uh, Jesus... Uh, tonight, where is he? He's in heaven. Where in heaven? He is in the sanctuary, right? Based on Hebrews and other books of the Bible. And he is in the, the most inner sanctum of heaven's sanctuary. And it's, called the, it's a call of the judgment hour, a call to commitment, a call to surrender, a call to allow Christ through his blood to cleanse our hearts. 
So could we be living in the time, that unique time of Earth's history? And we see that to find out, we need to study the book of Daniel again in chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, we find an amazing prophecy about Jesus' first coming. This prophecy also I love because this proves without a doubt that the Bible can be trusted, that the Bible is reliable, that the Bible is divine. Okay, and I hope that you see that today as well as we go over this chapter, Daniel chapter 9, uh, and we see it's, it's page 868. 868, and Daniel 9, and we see that the angel Gabriel comes to give Daniel more information. He and, and through this prophecy in Daniel 9, it's going to predict the exact date, get this, the exact date of Christ's baptism. It's going to give the exact date when the gospel went to the Gentiles. It's going to predict the exact date that the Jewish leaders rejected the gospel of Christ. And this prophecy is focused around Christ and the life of Christ and his sacrifice for us. And when you see how precise God was in talking about how these things happened and how they came to be, you're going to see that the Bible is truly a divine book. So, let's take a look. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Daniel 9, 24, page 868. And I believe we're at table number 8. And so can we have someone read Daniel 9, verse 24? Okay, so there's a lot of information there. We're going to break it down. But let's focus on the beginning of this. It says, how many weeks? Okay, 70 weeks are determined for who? People. Your people. Who's your people referring to? Daniel's people, exactly. The Jews, right? So 70 weeks are determined for the Jewish nation. Yes or no? Yes? Okay, are you following? So we see that Daniel's people are the Jews. And it's talking about uh, the city. It says, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. What is the holy city for Jews? <laughs> Jerusalem. Right? Daniel city. So we see, it says, 70 weeks are, de are determined. That word determined means actually cut off. Okay? It means cut off. So what is it, what is it cut off from? What is the 70 weeks cut off from? It's got to be the 2300-day time period, or 2300 years, right? So part of that 2300 years, part of that is cut off for the Jewish people. Are you following? Right. 70 weeks of that 2300 days is a lot of for the Jewish nation, okay? And so we see that uh, the 70 prophetic weeks... Okay, the Bible says there will be 70 prophetic weeks in this prophecy. Remember that a day equals a what? A year in, in, in Bible prophecy. So what should we do with the 70 weeks to determine the days? Anyone good on that? Well, that? Multiplied by seven. Why is that? Because there's how many days in a week? Seven days. So you just multiply 70 weeks times the number of days in a week, right? And so when you do that, what do you come up with? 
490 prophetic days. Very good. You guys get an A for math. <laughs> right, 490 prophetic days. Right? So we have the days now. So how much of this 2300 day time period, I'm sorry, keep saying day, 2300 year time period is cut off? 490 years. Are you following? Okay, so uh, let, let me give you guys a way to remember this, a, a visual. You guys like pie? How many of you guys like pie? Okay, a few of you are like pie, okay. So pretend that the whole pie is like the 2300 days, okay? Or 2300 years, literally. If I cut a slice of that pie, that pie, that small pot, that small piece is for the Jewish nation. Okay, it's a piece of the big whole, right? Still part of it, but it's belonging specifically for them, right? So the 490 is that piece of pie, whereas the 2300 days is the whole, right? The whole prophecy. So we see that 490 symbolic days equals 490 literal years. This is 70 weeks. Right? And so we take that 70 weeks from the 2300 days. This whole timeline is 2300 uh, days or 2300 years, right? And the 70 weeks is 490 years. So you cut that piece off as a portion for the Jews. That is what, what, and what remains, we'll talk about that later, right? So the first 490 years is very significant of this time prophecy because it relates specifically to Jesus. And so, Jesus, he came to his own people, the Jews, and invited them to accept them as their Messiah and to take the gospel to the rest of the world. But did they receive him? No. They rejected him, right? And we see that the first 490 years of the prophecy are all about Jesus and the Jews. So question number five when does this prophecy start? We know the time span. We know how much is allotted for the Jewish nation. But when does it start? Right? What is the point of origin? Okay, so we look at Daniel 9, verse 25, page 868. We're not going anywhere. It's still on the same page. Uh, Daniel 9, 25. And we have table number 9. To read that for us. Daniel 9, 25. Okay, thank you. So, we see, here's the starting point. Do you see it? It says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, stop right there. That's the starting point. What is this referring to? This is referring to a command or a decree that was made, a decree that actually allowed the the Jewish people to return to Jerusalem and restore and build. When was this? Remember? When Jerusalem, they were destroyed. Who took them captive? Babylon, right? They were taken into Babylonian captivity. It was in ruins. The city and the temple. The Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar attacked Jerusalem overthrew it, and Daniel was one of the captives taken to Babylon. So the angel comes down to Daniel, and he says, there's a prophecy of 2,300 years. The first part of this prophecy 
applies to your people, the Jews. Daniel, you'll know that the whole prophecy starts with a command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And this is very significant to Daniel. As we continue in this verse, it says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, unto what? Unto the Messiah, the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. So the seven weeks is talking about the time period where the first event happens. Jerusalem is restored. Right? They go out to restore it. 62 weeks after that, the second event, the Messiah, the Prince, appears. Right? So who's the Messiah, the Prince? Jesus. Now, I can imagine when Daniel hears that, he's like, what? The Messiah? And he's like getting excited. The long-awaited Messiah is being mentioned. The long-awaited Messiah is about to come on the scene during this time period. And 70, uh, 7 and 62 weeks. What is that? If you add that up. 7 weeks plus 62 weeks. What is that total? 69. 69. So in total, 69 weeks. So we see that there is a command where King Artaxerxes in 457 BC, that is when that decree was made, where the Jewish nation could return. They could leave Babylon. They could return to their homeland. They could rebuild. They become an autonomous nation. Once again, they regained their identity once again as a nation. And that took place. That's historical. You can see that in the history books. Very big event. 457 BC. And then furthermore, this is really amazing. Did you know that the Persian Empire actually funded all the materials for the Jews to go back and to rebuild? Definitely God was at work. <laughs> right? They didn't have no reason to do that, but God was at work and God furnished them everything that they needed to rebuild the, the Jerusalem and their city and their temple. Isn't God good? Even though we turn our backs to Him like the Jews did, God still shows His grace to them. Right? And 457 BC is where the starting point is. That is our starting point. That's our point of origin. 457, the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Right? Unto the Messiah, the Prince. Right? That's going to be 400, 483 years. If you actually take uh, 69 weeks, how do you convert weeks to days? Multiply by 7. Right? Number of days in a week. And that leads to 483 days or 483 literal years. Are you guys following? We're just following the same principle. Okay? The same principle. Day for year. We're just interpreting what the book of Daniel tells us in Daniel chapter 9. So, we see that there is this time period. Right? Where it's unto the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the Messiah the Prince. Okay? Now... We see that the first part of this prophecy is for the Jews, right? 490 years. That part is for the Jews, right? Like a piece of pie. That's only for the Jews. Don't touch that piece, <laughs> right? And then the next part was left. If you take 490, subtract it from 2300, what does that remain? The rest of the pie. The rest of the pie is... 1810. 1810 years. Are you guys following? Yeah? Okay, so that's what's left when you cut off the piece for the Jews. 
right? The rest for the Gentiles, part two, right? And so we see that the anchor date is 457 BC. Now, some of you may think, well, do we know that that's the right date? How do we know that that is truly the right date or not? And I'm going to show you and prove to you without a shadow of a doubt that this is the correct date. Okay, so let's take a look here. We see that the angel Gabriel tells Daniel from the start of the decree, which was when? 457 BC until what? The Messiah, the Prince, that's Jesus. There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So we see 69 weeks, right? So unto the Messiah, the Prince, there should be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Okay? So, question number six says, did Jesus really come after the 69 weeks? Okay, let's see. We know that um, the word Messiah, what does it mean? The anointed one, right? So the word Messiah means anointed one. Was Jesus ever anointed? When was Jesus anointed? He was anointed when? At his baptism. Remember, Acts 10 says that when Jesus went into the water to be baptized, he was anointed by the Holy Spirit. That's what Acts 10 tells us. It tells us very clearly that Jesus, when he was baptized, he was anointed. And remember when the, the dove came, and came upon him and he was anointed for his ministry? He was anointed by the Holy Spirit and he started his ministry from then, that, that point on. And so therefore, from the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, it would be 69 prophetic weeks until the baptism of Jesus. Right? And so the decree went forth in the fall in 457 B.C. So if you go 69 prophetic weeks or 483 literal years forward in time, it should take you to the baptism of Christ. And we see that when did that take place? When was Jesus baptized? What year? Can we find out? Well, if we take 457, starting point, 483 years into the future, where would that take us? Remember, 457 B.C., right? In a timeline, B.C. and A.D., there's a difference, right? B.C. goes backwards. So in order to understand, and Jesus, when he was born, it was in A.D., right? So there's a jump from B.C. to A.D. that takes place. So that means... You have to take 457 subtracted by 483 to go backwards, right? So what year does that lead us to? If you subtract 483 to 457, what's the year? 26, that's right. 26 AD. But whenever you make the jump from B.C. to A.D., there's a zero year. And you have to account for a zero year. There's no, no, there's, no, there's no such thing as a zero year. So you have to add a one. Okay? So you add one to 26, it'll be 27 A.D. That, my friends, is the exact year that Jesus was baptized. 
Is that interesting? 27 AD. Now, how do we know that? Do we have anything that can back that up? And we see in Luke chapter 3, verse 21, look at this. It says, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And look at this. In Luke chapter 3, verse 1, it says, now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. That's a very important piece of information. The 15th year of Tiberius' reign was when? Do you know? It was the same year. 27 AD. You look at it in the history books. It's the exact year that Jesus was baptized as predicted by the prophet Daniel. Now, is that a wow factor or what? The fact that that prophecy actually pinpointed the exact time that Jesus would go into the banks of the Jordan River and be baptized. That's amazing. You, that, that's not by chance. That's not by accident. That's not coincidence. Definitely God does, does everything on time. And so can there be any doubt that Jesus is the Messiah? You know, Daniel predicted the exact date of his baptism 500 years before Jesus was born. And the Bible tells us to know, therefore, and understand. And God says, know it. God says, understand it. The, ba- the Bible is mathematically accurate. And it's incredible to know that God has a plan all along, and He has a plan for your life as He had a plan for Jesus as He walked on this earth. He has a plan for you as well. And everything is on clockwork. And we see question number seven. What happens next after the, after the Messiah appears? We see that Daniel 9, verse 26. Let's take a look at that. We're still on page 868, and we're on table number 10. Is that right? Table number 10, if we could have someone read Daniel 9, verse 26. Okay. All right, very good. So it says that after the 62 weeks, the Messiah shall be what? Cut off. Now, what does it mean to be cut off? What does that mean? When when it says that the Messiah, Jesus was cut off, what is that referring to? He died, right? He died. And so it's talking about when you cut something off, usually it dies, right? So this is talking about Jesus' what? Crucifixion, right? On the cross. And so, when would Jesus be crucified? Does this prophecy tell us? It tells us exactly when. We see that it says that he shall confirm a covenant with many for how long? One week. Now, we know the day year principle, right? How much, how many years is one week? Seven, exactly. Because there's seven days in a week, day for a year, seven years. Seven years. So it says that he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. So we see that this makes sense. Because the angel told us that there were 70 weeks for Daniel's people. 69 weeks brought us to AD 27. That leaves one week, does it not? One week left of the original 490. And we have to calculate... 
uh, we have calculated from 483 until the Messiah or Jesus would come. So he says he will confirm the covenant for many for one week. So this is the remaining seven years that was cut off of the 490, right, for Daniel's people. So look at this. This is incredible. It says, Then he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And verse 27 It says, but in the middle of that week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. (laughs) What does it mean when it's the middle of the week? Middle is the half of seven. Right? Half of seven. And it says that in the middle of the week, he shall do what? Bring an end to sacrifice and offering. How did this happen? We see, let's review. We see that the decree goes forth from the fall of 457. 483 years takes time in the time of AD 27 when Jesus was baptized. In the middle of the prophetic week is what? Three and a half years. How many years was Jesus in ministry? Three and a half years. What happened at the end of his ministry? He died in the middle of that week. Right? How much more time is left? Three and a half. Right? So we see that (laughs) understanding Christ's work and mission helps us to understand even better how these dates fit. Daniel not only prophesied the coming of Christ and his baptism, but he knew the exact date of his death. And so we see that God is amazing. And he wants us to understand these amazing truths. This gives us absolute confidence in the Bible and as Jesus being our Savior and that he died for you and me at the right time. Amen? And so we see that Daniel 9, that chapter is about Jesus Christ as our Messiah. And it says that he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And and how did he do that? It says in Matthew 24... I'm sorry, Matthew 26, 27 to 28. How did he confirm that covenant? He said, Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So in other words, Jesus was actually talking about this covenant before he died. And this covenant includes you and I. When we accept and believe his words by faith. And so Jesus says that he is the Lord of the covenant. Jesus confirms that covenant with his shed blood. He ratifies that covenant on the cross. And so we see that Jesus was crucified exactly on time. He was baptized on time. He was crucified exactly on time. And get this. Let's take a look at this. This is really awesome. <laughs> Let's look at Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Page eight, uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 15. I don't have the page number for this one, but I think you must look at this text. Mark 1, verse 15. And we see that when Jesus started his ministry, do you know what he said? At the very start of his ministry, Mark 1, verse 15 is page 968. 968. What does Jesus say when he starts his ministry? He says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
What is Jesus saying? What's the first words he says when he starts? The time is fulfilled. What time is he talking about? He's talking about the time of Daniel, chapter 9. He's saying that the Messiah has come right on time. I am those who I am what Daniel has foretold of, and here I am, according to the time that Daniel has told you of. So Jesus was affirming the fact that he is exactly the one foretold as the Messiah in Daniel chapter 9. And indeed, he came at the right time. Romans chapter 5 verse 6 says, In due time, or in other words, at the right time, Jesus died for the ungodly. Jesus confirmed the covenant he made from the beginning of time with his blood. And he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. What does that mean? How did Jesus bring an end to sacrifice and offering? We see that the moment that Jesus died, the the moment that Jesus yielded up his breath, and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he said, it is finished. Right? When he died, he breathed his last breath. And what happened after that? That What happened to the earthly temple? The curtain in the earthly temple tore from top to bottom, signifying that the earthly sanctuary was obsolete now. It's no longer needed We no longer rely on the blood of lambs and goats anymore because the blood of Jesus has fulfilled all those types. And so we see that never again do we look to an earthly temple. Jesus has died on the cross. Jesus shed His blood. Never again would the blood of bulls and goats be recognized by God as having any value because we have a more precious blood that is offered for us, which is the blood of Jesus. Jesus was baptized on time. He is the Messiah. Jesus was crucified on time. He is the Messiah. And Jesus would be resurrected. He would ascend as our high priest. And He is there now, serving as our high priest ever since then. And we don't need now to look at an earthly temple because Jesus is in the heavenly temple. And He is a, he's doing a most important work there. And, can, and, and Jesus is... He's he's telling us we should not have our eyes fixed on literal Jerusalem, but we should be focused on the heavenly Jerusalem. Our eyes are fixed on a cosmic conflict between good and evil. The titanic struggle between God and Satan still happens today. But we see that as we look to Jesus and what He is doing, we know how we should be ready for His soon return. Uh, Number eight. After the Messiah is cut off, how much time is left for the Jews? So the Messiah is cut off. We see that on the cross, he died in the middle of that week, right? How much time is left for the Jewish nation? Three and a half years. Three and a half years. Jesus was crucified in 31 AD, but he does not reject that nation For three and a half more years, He reaches out in mercy. He reaches out in love to them. And Jesus does not turn His back on us, friends, when we turn our backs on Him. Jesus does not forsake us when we forsake Him. But don't let that continue to make you go your own way. Because there's going to come a time where mercy will close its door. Just as it did for the Jewish nation. We see that brings us to the year 34 A.D. That's the end of the 490 years. How did the Jews finally reject the gospel message, the gospel that was centered on Jesus being their Messiah? How did they once and for all seal their fate 
by that rejection. We see in 8034, Stephen, one of the first deacons of the Christian church, he spoke up, he gave a magnificent, magnificent speech on Jesus being the Messiah of the Old Testament. And as he preached that, it says that his face was like an angel. And the people were, as they heard his words, they were pricked in their hearts, they were convicted, the Holy Spirit was telling them, what he's saying is true. But what they did is that they retaliated in violence and hostility, they dragged Stephen out, and they stoned him to silence him. And that started a terrible persecution that scattered the early believers. But despite that, that persecution actually was a good thing because it opened the door for the preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles. And so AD 34 is a significant because it marks the end of the 490-year time prophecy. The Jewish nation rejects Jesus as Messiah by stoning Stephen. The gospel then goes out to the Gentiles and to the world. It goes to us. We are the Gentiles that now are recipients of the gospel because we believe in Jesus Christ. Right? And so we see that the gospel goes out to the Gentiles. And then we see that it tells us in Daniel 9.24... Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. This was a time period. This is a probationary time period for the Jewish nation. And they sealed their fate by rejecting Christ completely. And so number nine, what happens after time is over for the Jews? And we see this, where, this is where it gets very interesting. We go to Daniel chapter 8, verse 14. We remember this text. For 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be, what? Cleansed. We see question number nine. Oh, I'm sorry, we, we did nine. Um, we see that the first part was for the Jews, the 490 years. We see that the second part's for the Gentiles. That's the remaining eight, 1810, 1,810 years. We see now, when you go forward in... Uh, if you take 34 AD and add 1810, what year does that lead you to? 1844. That's the year that marks the end of this 2300-day time period. And 1844 was not that long ago, really, right? And we see that 1844 marks the end of the 2300-day time period. So question number 10 then would say, what would happen at the end of this time period, the 2300 days or 2300-year time prophecy? We see that the sanctuary will be cleansed. That's what Daniel tells us. Brothers and sisters, if the Bible's correct, which I believe it is, and you've seen it, you've seen how every event hits its time marker exactly. You see, every event where Jesus was baptized at the right time, he was crucified at the right time, it marks the very end where the gospel was rejected by the Jewish nation, and what remains, and the time period that remains, and how we fast forward to 1810 from 34 AD, brings us to 1844, the end of the 2300-day time period. The prophecy tells us that during this time, the sanctuary will be, will be cleansed. Which sanctuary is that? The heavenly sanctuary. The heavenly sanctuary. And it says that when the sanctuary is cleansed, the, the sanctuary would be cleansed, and when that happens, 
judgment begins. Since 1844, we have been living in God's judgment hour. And according to his prophecy, we're now living in a unique time in earth's history when the destinies of the entire human race are to be settled. God gave John a vision of the judgment hour in Revelation. He portrays it as a time when an urgent message proclaimed by an angel flying swiftly through the sky saying to every nation under heaven, the hour of his judgment has come. So question number 11, this is a very important question, probably the most important question of tonight. How can we prepare for this judgment? Knowing that prophecy has shown that it has been going like clockwork, things are being fulfilled like clockwork, how we know that what's next to come is imminent, the cleansing of the sanctuary. How can we prepare for this judgment? You see that it says, Fear God, give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. This is a special hour of earth's history. We're living in the judgment hour. And this is a call for us to give our hearts and our minds and our lives to God. It's a call to be cleansed in our hearts. It's a call to say to Jesus, I need you. And if we look at our good works, if we look at our good deeds, we might think that we've earned a spot in heaven. You may think, I'm not as bad as other people are. But how would you feel if you're called to stand before the throne of judgment today? Have you always been kind and loving to your family? Have you always spoken the truth? Have you ever spoken gossip? Have you ever taken something that belonged to someone else? Have you ever lusted? Never envied the rich and coveted their goods? Do you have confidence today about how that final investigation in heaven will decide your case? There's a story of Frederick Wilhelm. Um, in the country of Germany, in Europe, many years ago, a talented young man named Frederick William Herschel was drafted into the army. One night in a terrible battle, overwhelmed with terror, he fled the battlefield. And his father sent him to England, changed his name to William, and he studied astronomy and built a telescope. And with that telescope, he discovered a new planet and became famous. The king of England sent for William to appear before him. And William was afraid. The king's grandfather, George II, was the only one who ruled Germany when William had deserted from the army. And William was sure that now he would be recognized as a deserter and sentenced to death. And as he waited to see the king, a servant approached and presented William with an envelope. With trembling hands, William opened it, expecting to find his long-awaited sentence for death. But as he opened that envelope and read the contents therein, 
he found not a sentence of death, but a full and complete pardon. What a relief that must have been for William. We see in 1 John 2, 1 and 2, it says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. That includes you and me. Jesus is your advocate in this time of judgment. Jesus is going to represent you. He's going to fight for your case. So there, and Jesus does not want you to be trembling with fear, but he offers you a full pardon tonight. And we see that tonight, will you trust him to carry you through the judgment and allow your heart and life to be cleansed by his word? Jesus is up there as our high priest saying that this man or woman or child is mine. And he sends his spirit into our hearts. We see that Jesus is there up in the heavenly sanctuary where the destinies of the dead are now being decided, where the destinies of the entire human race will soon be decided. And Jesus is there interceding for you and me. He's the author of our faith. He began a good work in you, but He is also the finisher of our faith. He's interceding for you. His arms are outstretched to you tonight. And He wants to represent you before the throne of God as cleansed, righteous, and children of God. But that can only take place if we give our lives to Him. If we surrender to Him Say, Lord, I want to be your child. You must open your heart up to Jesus and say, Jesus, I want you in my life. I want that assurance of your presence to be with me always so I will never fear for the judgment. How many of you want that tonight? Do you want to say, Lord Jesus, I want you in my life, in my heart? If so, I would like to pray for you tonight and ask that the Lord will give us just that, His presence to be with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much that even as we speak, Christ faithfully serves as our mediator in the heavenly sanctuary. He is interceding for us. He is petitioning His spilt blood for us and He is crediting to us His righteous life so that we may be able to stand in this judgment. Oh Lord, we thank You so much. We are grateful for all that You do and what You have provided for us. And we pray that You'll please be with each and every one of us here. We want you in our lives. We want you in our hearts. We want our lives to be changed anew. And we ask that you please do it tonight. Do that work in us tonight. Not because we deserve it, but because we know that you have promised that you will do it. And we thank you and we praise you for doing just that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.